got your workbook, let's get it out, and we'll go over some things in the workbook. As well. You about ready, Eddie? Okay. There we go. Getting set things set up here. All right. Okay, let's uh you going? We going? Okay. Let's uh let's just start off with prayer. And uh, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer first, and then I'll open in prayer as we usually do. Okay. Father, we thank... (laughs) Silent prayer first. I'm ahead of myself. Father, we're thankful for this time we have to come together to study about studying your word, to come to a better understanding of how to uh, properly get into the things of your word, properly study and work things out without... um, reading things into the text without committing uh, errors of interpretation and coming to understand uh, the meaning of the text based upon its historical grammatical uh, usage. Father, help us to work through the passage and think about the passages that we're studying this evening, that they might help us uh, have clarity into your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. I want to start off, first of all, by looking at, if you have your workbook, you can kind of go through this list that Hendricks has in, in chapter 47 of the workbook. It's also parallel to chapter 28 in the textbook. And just to review this in case there are uh, uh, any uh, questions or any other, any other issues that come up, uh, he talks about various hazards to avoid. And he begins with the first one, which is just misreading the text. Just misreading the text. He says, if you read the text wrongly, you're going to get the wrong interpretation. If Jesus says, I am the way, and you read, I am a way, you're going to get a very bad interpretation of the passage. I saw an example of this when I was in seminary. In 1 Timothy 2.12, back in the 70s, this is a battle that we haven't quite lost yet, but we're we're losing it. Back in the 70s, there was a huge, huge uh, battle over dealing with the role of role of women in the church, especially in relation to having women pastors. And there have been um, you know, a lot of problems with this along the way. That was a problem with Dallas because their original purpose statement was to train men for the pulpit ministry, pastoral ministry, 
And so they had to change their purpose statement so they could let women into the Masters of Theology program and into the doctoral program. So there was a lot of politics involved in all of that, I mean, internally within the seminary. But one of the things that that happened when I was a student, probably my third year at Dallas, was that they, they had invited Elizabeth Elliott to speak to the uh, speak to the student body in chapel. That was the first time a woman had ever spoken in chapel. Now, Elizabeth Elliott was the closest thing to an evangelical celebrity that we had at the time. Her husband uh, was um, uh, John Elliott, who was one of five missionaries who were massacred by the Alca Indians on a sandbar down in Ecuador in the, it was either in the late 50s or early 60s. And the, she wrote his story. Uh, they were just a young married couple at the time in their, in their twenties, graduate, graduates from Bible college and going off to the mission field. And the book was called Through Gates of Splendor. That's a great book to read, great missionary story to read because it's a story of a modern thing. And then there were sequels, a couple of sequels written to it because even though they, these five, um, men were all slaughtered by the Alka Indians, it eventually led to their, uh, the evangelism of this Stone Age tribe that had had no contact with the outside world. And they had quite a, quite a remarkable uh, witness and testimony, and she, so she sort of became uh, got a claim to fame, being the widow of a modern martyr. And she wrote the book through Gates of Splendor, and she wrote some other things, and developed a women's ministry. So that by the late '70s, she was uh, fairly well known in the evangelical community. So and they invited her to come and speak, and being aware of the controversy over whether or not women should be in the pulpit. She tried to justify her presence speaking in the pulpit. I want you to read First uh, Tim- Timothy two twelve. Just read it to yourself. So she got in the pulpit, and she said that she was it was legitimate for her to address. And at this time, Dallas was all male students. It was legitimate for her to dress to address a male audience because she was under the authority of the faculty and the administration of the seminary. And the scripture says that Paul prohibited women from teaching and having authority over men in the church. Notice anything? It's not what it says. It says from teaching or having authority over men in the church. And the word there for men is males as opposed to, it's not anthropos, it's on air, which emphasizes males as opposed to females. So, um, this was uh, quite, uh, you know, and, and I, you'll, <clears throat> anybody want to guess who I was sitting next to in the, po- in, 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 in the pew? Tommy Ice, that's right. That was pretty much a standard operating procedure back in the 70s. And we both looked at each other and went, what? She's going to stand in the pulpit at Dallas Seminary and misquote scripture? So that's a problem. If you misread scripture, you will, you will have problems. And of course, uh, Hendricks also uses another passage here, 1 Timothy 6.10, which is often misquoted as the love of money or, or money is the root of all, of all evil rather than the love of money 
is a root of all sorts of evil. So it's it's easy that people often misread the text, and it's easy to do that with some promises in some places in the text simply because of the way it is translated in English. So that's the first thing, is that we have to make sure we have a correct uh, a correct understanding of the text. That's one of the principles I emphasized last time. We we know what the text says, not a textual variant or a misunderstanding of the text. Second problem is distorting the text, which has always been a problem. And Hendricks quotes from a um, passage in Second Peter uh, 3.16, which is taught in reference to Paul, who's mentioned in verse 15, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Every seminary student loves this passage. Every pastor loves this passage. If Peter had trouble understanding Paul, then I'm justified in not understanding Paul. Paul is difficult. Um, there are things there that are hard to understand, but not impossible to understand. Uh, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. People often engage in scripture twisting, and that it usually comes out of pe- from people who have some sort of political or social agenda and people who don't have a high, a high regard for the, for the text itself. So they intentionally distort the meaning of scripture. Then there are those who contradict the text specifically. These also are, are the ones who don't have a high regard for the Word of God or for the infallibility of the Word of God, and they're usually trying to use the Word of God as a way to uh, attack biblical Christianity, a literal biblical interpretation. Third category he mentions is subjectivism, and I think it's particularly important in our day and age to look at what he says about subjectivism. In the workbook, he says, many Christians tolerate a form of mysticism in reading their Bible. This is extremely prevalent, uh, that they would never allow in any other realm. He says they violate every tenet of reason and common sense. Their Bible study is totally subjective. They wander around the scripture waiting for a liver quiver to tell them when they've struck pay dirt. There's nothing wrong with having an emotional reaction to the word of God, but the meaning of the text is in the text, not in our subjective response to the text. What mysticism is ultimately is a rejection of reason. It's the opposite of depending upon reason and and experience in the positive sense of, of, of experience, not in the subjective sense of experience, as a basis for studying the Word of God using logic as we approach the text. It is just expecting some sort of internal uh, reaction, vibration, stimulation, something that tells us what the meaning of the text is without going through the process of Bible study. I like what uh, what Hendrick says. Uh, he goes on, he uses a quote. <clears throat> Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland is a um, great source of quotations for things related to this, and he has a quote from the White Queen having a dialogue with Alice. And so the White Queen asks Alice, How old are you? 
She replies, I'm seven and a half exactly. You needn't say exactly, the queen remarked. I can believe it without that. Now, I'll give you something to believe. Notice how belief is used in this little quote. This is what, what subjectivism, what, how mysticism works. She says, I'll give you something to believe. I'm just 101, five months and a day. I can't believe that, said Alice. Can't you, the queen said in a pitying tone, try again. Draw a long breath and shut your eyes. Alice laughed. There's no use trying. One can't believe impossible things. Notice, Alice thinks that belief is rational, not irrational. The queen thinks it's irrational. She says, I dare say you haven't had much practice. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. She must have founded the modern Democrat Party. Okay. That uh, subjectivism and mysticism rely on many other factors to indicate the meaning of the text rather than just a study of the literal meaning of the text. Usually it's focused on some sort of internal liver quiver, fuzzy, you know, some sort of vibration or something, some feeling to indicate the meaning of the text. It's an intellectually lazy approach to Bible study. The next mistake he talks about is relativism, that people approach Scripture thinking that the Bible changes its meaning over time. One of the problems that I've heard is people thinking that the Bible was translated and translated again and translated again and that the current Bible is a result of multiple translations down through the ages. So the Bible has changed its meaning many times. This is what you often hear from uh, from New Age people. This was one of Shirley MacLaine's claims. I ran into this several times in reading different things back in the back in the eighties. There's an ignorance about the Bible that the Bible was written in Greek and Hebrew, and even though there are some minor variations between manuscripts, this is typical of any ancient manuscript where there have where multiple copies have been made. And the way you work through and compare manuscripts to discover the original meaning is a very logical scientific process called textual criticism. And so in the, in the, um, um, history of Christianity, we have a fairly good sense of what the original text said. The variations are usually grammatical or stylistic or Words are flip-flopped in order as the scribe's eyes shifted on the page. Words are left out or words are accidentally added, things like that, which are pretty easy to explain. Nothing affects any kind of significant doctrine whatsoever. But when we... So we have an original text that is pretty stable that goes back and is substantiated uh, as a very ancient document going back to the third and late 3rd and 4th century um, A.D. for the New Testament and going back to 2nd or 3rd century B.C. But BC for the Old Testament. But we also have quotations in numerous other writings of passages of Scripture that go back even further. We have uh, in the New Testament, we have quotations in writings, quotations in sermons, quotations in various 
uh, letters, things of that nature that were written in the early second century that are quoting from New Testament books. And so this gives us a further source of documentation as for what the early text said. So the text doesn't change over time, and the meaning hasn't changed over time. We believe that, that you go back and you study the use of the words at that time, and you have lexicons that enable us to do that. I've mentioned the fact that we use as a primary lexicon uh, one that originally is um, the original work was in the 19th century by S.C. Bauer. Two English or American scholars, uh, Arndt and Gingrich, worked on that through the early part of the 20th century. That became the Arndt and Gingrich lexicon, became the standard Greek lexicon. And then it has been worked on since then, and the documentation for word meanings has been added to over time. There was another uh, lexicon that was put together in the early part of the 19th century, uh, edited by... Uh, to Brett's Moulton and Milligan. And Moulton and Milligan's lexicon is a lexicon to the papyri. So there are thousands and thousands of documents in the papyri, some secular, some of which are, are biblical. And so those all date from this, the Koine period. And so you can look at that lexicon. You can, today with the use of computers, and as more and more ancient Greek texts come online, you can do a phenomenal amount of search. There's a, a, a program called, not program, but a website called Pegasus uh, out of Tufts University, which has had all of the uh, ancient Greek documents, classical, Koine, and medieval, all out there. Uh, and you can search those. Lexicons are out there on, on the Pegasus, Pegasus website. Everything's there. And so we can study what these words meant at the time in which they were written and come to a clear understanding of the meaning of the text. And then the last thing that that uh, he mentions is overconfidence, that easily people think they know what the text means. The more familiar you get with the Bible sometimes, you just think you can pick it up and read and automatically think that you know what it means. And that's just a product of pride or overconfidence, or you think that, well, dear old doctor so-and-so taught me that this passage means X, and that's what I've always thought, so that's what it must mean. But over the course of time, others who have worked on words and studies and everything may have come to a better understanding of that passage. We're constantly improving, I think, our understanding of some of the more difficult passages of Scripture. That doesn't mean everybody agrees. But what I found in my personal study, when I'm working through a, a, a difficult study on a, or a difficult problem of hermeneutics, for example, what I'm working through now in the Sermon on the Mount, I can look at something where I may disagree with about 90% of what the writer is saying, or it may be just that he's not saying much. It's just a rather general or superficial summary of something, but he may say one thing. He, there may be one sentence in there that is that turns on a light switch, and he may not have anything else right, but it, and he, he may not even have anything right in that sentence, but the sentence sets off a light and helps you get a uh, grasp of what the passage might be, what might be talking about. So those are just some of the errors to avoid. Now, on moving on through the workbook, 
In chapter 48, which is in my version, that's on page 115. Is that the same for y'all? What? See, they, they change these things, so I'm never, I'm never quite the same. Uh, this lists various uh, literary genres of the Bible, and uh, these are all spelled out in the uh, textbook, and you can read through those and see examples of different types of genre. As I stated uh, last time, the first genre he mentions is apocalyptic because he lists them in uh, alphabetical order, and I disagree with apocalyptic as a biblical category. Apocalyptic literature is, I think what you have in the Bible, what comes first is biblical prophecy. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, some of the writings of the Twelve, uh, the New Testament, you have Revelation. And then, especially in the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament, there were some Jewish apocalyptic writings that mimicked the prophetic writings of Scripture. And But they add a measure and a level of fantasy and irrationality or that which is incredulous uh, to the text. And that you, if you read biblical prophecy and then you read the apocalyptic literature, there's a clear distinction between them. But what has happened with secular scholars is that they've gone and they've looked at all of these and lumped them together as an apocalyptic genre. And I prefer to think that apocalyptic is uh, very much different from from the biblical uh, prophetic accounts. It is a cheap counterfeit, you might say. So I disagree with that as a as a category. You have um, biography listed, encomium listed, which is a writing that uh, gives high praise to someone. Uh, exposition, which is a carefully reasoned argument or exposition, narrative, oratory, which is a uh, given as a oral, originally as an oral presentation, parable, which are stories given to illustrate uh, biblical and spiritual truths, uh, and they do not mention individuals by name. Then when you come to stories such as Lazarus and the Rich Man, we know this is not a parable because it identifies an individual by name and treats him as a his actual individual, whereas in parables such as the parable of the prodigal son, none of the characters have a name. They, they just represent um, stock characters. Uh, we have poetry, prophecy, proverbs, uh, satire at times, tragedy, wisdom literature, things of that nature. And sometimes a a book will have different types of genre with within it. Okay, anybody have any questions on any of that up to this point? Before we get into Habakkuk. Now, I don't know how far y'all or how much that y'all did in answering the questions and reading through Habakkuk. Or Habakkuk, but I thought that we would just work through these exercises tonight to pull together uh, the book of Habakkuk in terms of interpretation. So, before we do that, I want you to turn over to chapter 55 for a minute. He starts talking about figurative language. What in the workbook? 
in the workbook, yeah. This is a summary of what's in the book. But it's it's the last thing he does. He should have done, I don't know why he did it in this order. He should have put the figurative before they did the, the study on Habakkuk. But he gives some principles for how do we um, understand figurative language. Literal interpretation is often misrepresented by opponents of literal interpretation as being just woodenly literal, not taking into account idioms, and metaphors and similes, various figures of speech. But a literal interpretation, I talked about this a little bit last time, takes into account figures of speech, and that figures of speech are part of everyday use of language, and we know when they are being used, and we know that they are not to be interpreted literally, but they are to be interpreted either as hyperbole, which is exaggeration, or irony, which is sarcasm, or as a metaphor or a simile. And we understand that because we understand the nature of the language. And every uh, every now and then we have uh, a little fun with people in terms of a joke by uh, doing a little paranomasia play on words uh, related, to, uh, related to figures of speech. So... It's kind of fun sometimes, but he lists on pages one in mind, one twenty nine and thirty, which would be just uh, chapter fifty five in the workbook. He lists ten different guidelines for identifying figures of speech. First one is to use the literal sense unless there is some good reason not to. This goes back to our basic principle of the the golden rule of interpretation. When the literal sense makes Common sense make no other sense. So use the literal sense unless there's some good reason. Now, what would that good reason look like? What do you think gives you a good reason for interpreting a passage in a non-literal sense? Well, you, you have to document that. You just can't say, well, it just seems that way. Sometimes it's, it's obvious. Sometimes you have things like the uh, our, our sins uh, have made us... Uh, uh, you know, or, or the, the death of Christ, salvation makes our sins as white as snow. The use of as there indicates a comparison and a simile. So that tells us we're using a figure of speech. Other times it's a little less obvious, but usually what we can do is go through and do a study of the, the word or the figure in Scripture, and we can document it. It's used in other ways. We'll see one example of that tonight. And so we can we can show that something is a figure of speech, or if you're not competent enough to do that, often commentaries will point this out, and you just have to rely on the authority of a scholar in terms of, of identifying that. Second principle is use the figurative sense when the passage tells you to do so. In other words, there there are certain clues and indications within the passage that indicate that it couldn't possibly be a literal uh, a, a literal phrase or or uh, terminology. Third, he says, use the figurative sense if a literal meaning is impossible or absurd. If the literal meaning is impossible or absurd. Now, I have a note here that I wrote. Uh, hear the word of the Lord. Did I get that right? 
Oh, verse 9. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have become like Gomorrah. And so you see that phrase like there indicates that this is a comparison with, with Sodom. And then in verse 10, Isaiah says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, is he actually addressing the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah? No, that would be impossible because they were all destroyed back in Genesis chapter, uh, what was that, about 17. And so that obviously is an impossible uh, to have a literal meaning there, so he's obviously using it as an unstated comparison or as a metaphor. Fourth, he says, use the figurative sense if a literal meaning would involve something immoral. If the literal meaning would involve something immoral or a violation of a moral mandate in Scripture. Uh, fifth, use the figurative sense if the expression is an obvious figure of speech. We'll see some things like that tonight. Uh, sixth, he says, use the figurative sense if a literal interpretation goes contrary to the context and scope of the passage. Okay, so we have to look at that in terms of what does the literal meaning say? Okay, that doesn't really fit the context. It goes beyond that, so we have to look for another meaning. Seventh, he says, use the figurative sense if a literal interpretation goes contrary to the character and style of the book. Again, it's all contextual. Eighth, he says, use the figurative sense if a literal interpretation goes contrary to the plan and purpose of the author. So if you look at uh, points uh, six, seven, and eight. What he's doing is he's talking about goes from the narrow passage, the the context and scope of the passage, the character and style of the book, or the plan and purpose of the author. And the ninth, he says, use the figurative sense if a literal interpretation involves a contradiction of other scripture. And then last, use the figurative sense if a literal interpretation would involve a contradiction in doctrine. So those are ten good principles to use for identifying um, identifying a figurative sense. Now I want to talk about uh, Habakkuk tonight and the study there, so let's go back and just kind of work through some of these questions starting in chapter 49. We're going to look at the last few verses in Habakkuk where he has a final hymn of praise just at the end, and he states, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation." The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high heels. High heels, rather, not high heels. That's that East Texas accent slipping out. Okay, this is the last. Now, I want you all to answer, work at answering the questions. First set of questions. Who wrote the passage? To whom was he writing? So this is a basic observation at the very beginning. Who wrote the passage? 
What do we know about the man who wrote the passage? Anybody have an answer? The prophet who? He was a prophet to Judah. Okay, what do we know about Habakkuk? That's right, not a lot. There's a lot of conjecture, but but no facts. (laughs) That's right, and that's true with a couple of other writers of the uh, uh, minor prophets in the Old Testament. We don't know a tremendous amount uh, about him. So he writes, when did he write? Before the Babylonians first came in. Yeah, that, we have to, we know that, and that's about all we know is that he wrote before the Babylonian invasion. Now, the first Babylonian invasion was when? Anybody remember? It's 605 BC. So he has to write before 605. But the Babylonians don't really begin to rise to power and don't really achieve their, their uh, status in the ancient world until uh, the Chaldeans defeat uh, the Egyptians at the Battle of uh, Carchemish. They beat the Egyptians and the Assyrians at the Battle of Carchemish, which is about 612 B.C. So, because, because in the book itself, at the very beginning, he talks about the, or God talks about the Chaldeans in verse 6 as a bitter and hasty nation. They're, they're just, they're just rising up. They're just beginning to gobble up all these nations. So he probably writes a little closer to, to 605 than to 612. Most people think that it's somewhere between 608 and 605, most conservative scholars. So to whom is he writing this? But he doesn't. But he doesn't address the people like other prophets do, where they address it to Judah or to Israel, and so that's something that is distinctive about Habakkuk is he doesn't address it. In fact, Habakkuk is not addressing the people at all, and and throughout this book he's addressing God. The first part of it is a conversation between. Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk is searching for answers to his questions about why God hasn't judged Israel as he promised according to the Mosaic law, and he's calling upon God to uh, execute judgment upon the nation. And then God answers him, and he really does, he has more problems with God's answer than he did with God's inactivity. So that's, uh, that's a converse, and, and then it, it, he, then he reflects and responds to God's actions. So that's, that's what's going on there. So that's the background. We really don't know, uh, he's not really addressing his people. It is indirectly for their benefit as it is for ours, but it isn't, he's not addressing it specifically to the people. So, uh, the next question that we have in the workbook is what is happening? What is the point that the author's trying to make? So long to 
Right. Why does it take, first part is why does it take God so long to execute judgment? And then he looks at the judgment that's being executed and says, how, really, how can a just God allow this to happen? How can you bring judgment upon your people with such truly unholy, wicked people? And it's a universal question that everybody asks whenever we reach certain stages in life and we see certain things happen that are unjust. We ask the question, how can God allow this injustice to take place? And so that's the question that he's that he's asking. Now, another, the next question is, where's the author when he writes this passage? He doesn't say, but maybe Jerusalem. He doesn't say he's he's where is he? Where can you say that he's not? The northern. Yeah, he's not in the northern kingdom because the northern kingdom went out under judgment in seven twenty two. He's not in Babylon. He's not with the captivity. He's writing this probably from Jerusalem or at least in Judea uh, just prior to the first invasion. Uh, that leads us into the next question. When generally was this written? And this is, uh, as I said earlier, around 605 to 608. And why did the author portray such a bleak setting? Why did he feel the need to be so affirming in light of the scene that he is describing. See, his affirmation comes at the end. He's saying, to, to summarize and put in sort of a modern idiom, uh, though I'll never get another paycheck, though my bank account is empty, though there's no food in the pantry, and there's nothing in the refrigerator, yet I will rejoice in the Lord I will have joy in the God of my salvation. So even if I have nothing, I will still have joy in the Lord because he's the God of my salvation. I will continue to be delivered, and he's saying I'll continue to live because the Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on high hills. So that's his conclusion. So he's he's stating something very positive, and he's able to state that even when everything gets wiped out. I think there's a, there's a lot of application here as we look around what's happening in, in history and contemporary times. Uh, there are people who are extremely pessimistic about the survival of Western civilization and the survival of our economy and the survival of the United States as a free republic under the, under the Constitution. And yet, is our survival as a nation uh, necessary in the plan of God? I think that's a conclusion a lot of Christians have had for years because back in the 40s and coming out of World War II, there was a close identification with Christianity and patriotism and the United States. And people ask the question, where do you find the United States in prophecy? And that's begging a question. The question it's begging is, why should the United States be significant enough to be in prophecy? We're assuming that because we're significant now, that we'll be significant in the future. There are a lot of assumptions that go into that, and I think that <clears throat> that we, we are a little bit misguided. But we could, uh, you know, if, if worst-case scenarios develop... And I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I've been hearing worst-case scenarios since I was in high school in the late 60s. Um, 
I don't know, Greg, y'all probably remember this. There were people who were stating that with uh, the projected population growth, especially in Asia, and the production of grain and rice and um, uh, in the world, that there would not be enough food produced in the world to support the population by 1975, and we would all be starving to death. So, you know, and I've heard various permutations of that over the last 40 years, so I tend to discount, you know, most of what I hear in terms of the worst-case scenario, gloom and doom. The other night at dinner, I was asked an interesting question is, do you think uh, that we're going to have this massive worldwide collapse of the economic markets before the rapture? My personal opinion is you don't get the scenario where people in the world are saying peace and safety at the beginning of the tribulation, if you've had that kind of worldwide calamity. I think that somehow there's going to be some something that causes things to seem to be more stable where people think there's a lot of stability when there really isn't, and the rapture may, by nature of its, uh, its, its event, the event, create a lot of calamity. So that the, 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 the most... In fact, the way most what I what I answered the other night was the way most people present the post calamity situation in the world, the survivalist civilizations destroyed. That's more the picture of a how things are going to be in the tribulation than before the rapture. So I think that overstates uh, the case to some degree. But the point that Habakkuk is making is even if you have a scenario like the Great Depression. We can rejoice because God's still in control, and those who trust in God are going to be taken care of by God. So that's that's his point. Now, I want to take a break now for about 10 minutes before we come back, and then when we come back, we'll look at the next. Uh, uh, I'd like to try to get through two or three of these next sections where we deal with uh, the con- the overall context of Habakkuk and continue to expand and develop our understanding of this of this book. So we'll take a break now and come back in about 10 minutes.